Amy, have you, um, you know where my keys are? I had them here a minute ago. It, you get, can you look right? Do you see my keys anywhere? You know, it's a key ring. It's got keys on it. Uh, where did I have them last? That's a great question. I set them down somewhere, and then I walked away, and then I did something. <laughs> so you got to know where they're at, right? Where are my keys? Here, can I just borrow your keys? Oh, honey, no, I'm sorry. I need my keys to get home. You need your keys to get home. How, how am I going to get home? <laughs> oh, you, you, oh, so somebody's going to try and give me a ride home. Oh, okay, enough of this. We got to look at the keys later. Okay, so we got to go to Revelation. So turn to where you're supposed to turn. You know, right? What? Revelation, what is it? 3, 7 through 13. Is that it? Page 1029. Stupid keys. They're always getting lost. I mean, it's not life or death, but, you know, it's, it's just frustrating when you lose your keys. All right, we'll deal with that later. Okay, so uh, Revelation uh, 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they'll learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your, pride, your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has a hear, let, ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're in the sixth or the penultimate. Don't you love that word, penultimate? It just means second to the last, but it's a fancy way. It makes you sound really intelligent. I learned it from cycling. It's always the penultimate stage. It took me a long time to figure it out, but it just kind of feels good. So we're in the penultimate letter of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, kind of Turkey area, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Now, a lot of people just kind of want to skip two and three. Oh, it's those letters. Who cares about those letters? We'll just, let's get to the, to the fun stuff or the crazy stuff starting in chapter 4. Well, we have to remember that the entire book that we call Revelation is written to these seven churches. That'd be like saying Ephesians and just skipping the fact that it's written to Ephesus. We just can't do that. So these letters are incredibly important. Now, Philadelphia was a prosperous city with close ties to Rome. Close ties to Rome because in, in 17 AD, it was destroyed completely by an earthquake, and Rome rebuilt it. And so there was this close tie with Rome, and so obviously they were under a lot of pressure to worship the emperor. It also had a large Jewish population, and that's going to play into the, to what is said in the letter, and a very small, it would seem, ch uh, Christian church. 
Now, nothing is negative said. This is the only one. Smyrna is the other one. Nothing is said negative about the church of Philadelphia. It's all very positive. And it starts off, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Every letter starts that way. And there's much discussion about what's this angel thing. And there's no consensus. And we could go through the seven most popular uh, thoughts on it, but quite frankly, it is not that pertinent to our, to our topic. So we're going to just acknowledge that what it says, but we don't really know what it means. goes, the words of the Holy One, the True One. Now remember, if you have a red-letter Bible, this is all in red. These are the words of Jesus through the Spirit and John. Remember, John's in the Spirit. The words of the Holy One, the True One. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, meaning He's what? God. He's unique. He's the the one and only. So he's saying he's divine, he's God. And then the true one, he's talking about the true Messiah. He is the true Messiah. The Messiah, that's Hebrew, Christ is Greek, same word, just two different languages, that he truly is the promised Messiah. And as we're going to see, the Jews reject that, and we, we know that. But Jesus is just affirming, I am God, and I am the true Messiah. And then... The critical part. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens? This is a reference. And by the way, Revelation references the Old Testament more than any book in the New Testament. So a a kind of a working understanding of the Old Testament is somewhat important to understanding Revelation. It's referencing Isaiah 22, 22. And there an individual by the name of Elohim is given the key of the house of David. And what that means is, is the key to the kingdom. He, by God, he's made by God the number two to King Hezekiah. And he has the keys, the power, the full authority of the king. And he decides who can come in and see the king and who doesn't. So in other words, he somewhat controls the affairs of the kingdom. And, in that, as a, and <clears throat> Isaiah talks about all the power and authority that's been given to this individual and the government rests on his shoulders and he will be the key for the people to access the power that's available through the king because he has the key to the door. And this door metaphor is going to be out throughout Revelation. You're going to see it several times, this concept of a door. So Jesus has this key of David, and what he opens stays open, and what he shuts stays shut. In other words, no one has authority over Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. And here he's really talking about two things. First, he's talking about that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Just as as Elohim was the only one that could allow you in to see the king, Jesus is the only one in the way to the Father, as he says in in John 14, 6. By the way, we're going to be looking at a number of things in John, because who writes Revelation? John. Who wrote the Gospel of John? John. So often we can understand Revelation by looking at what John says in his Gospel. And he says in fourteen six, Jesus speaking, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. So Jesus, even back then, acknowledges that he's the only way to the Father. And if Jesus is the only way to the Father, he's also the only way to heaven. He has the keys to heaven. That's what he's saying. He decides who gets in, and he decides who stays out. He is the key. 
And this sets the stage for what he's about to say to the church of Philadelphia. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He's saying to the church, the door to heaven is open to you. And it's open because of what? Their works. Whoa, we're Protestants. I can't hear this. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to know about works. We're grace. We're not works, right? And we have this violent reaction to anything that talks about works because, well, let us take a step back. Let's look at the full teaching of the Bible about the gospel, what it means to be right with God. See, it starts off most clearly probably in Romans 1, 2, and 3, but we have all fallen short. We have to acknowledge that we have sinned against God and that we have not worshipped Him properly and we followed that we're short of <clears throat> what He requires. And because of that, we are under His wrath. See, it always kills me, the, the people that want to be saved but don't believe they need to be saved from anything. If you don't need to be saved from anything, then you don't need to be saved. Yeah, that, thank you, Brian. Every once in a while, kind of throw gets caught. So if we don't need to be saved from anything, then we're never going to be saved. So we have to acknowledge that we all need to be saved, that we are under the wrath of God because we have sinned and fallen short. And then we are told that by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was sent by God, and through his life, death, and resurrection, that we can have a proper relationship with the Father and be saved from being under his wrath. Okay? Basic gospel. And we're usually good through that point. Oh, yeah, okay, I need a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. Then we're called, called to repent, meaning to ask for forgiveness, to acknowledge our sins, acknowledge we've fallen short, and to turn from our sin and from the world and turn to Jesus. And you've heard that many times up here. We, we turn to Jesus. That's part of the repenting. And sometimes this last part is what causes just a little challenge for us. See, our, our faith, we're saved by faith. Our faith, our believing, is evidenced by our turning. It's like James says in, in 2.18 in the book of James, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by our works. See, the thought that our faith does not affect how we live is just wrong. That's not faith. That may be a mental ascent to a, a concept, but it's not faith. But then we've got to be clear. We can't earn salvation. And so some of you can be saying, well, Tom, if you're saying it's all about what I do, then I'm really I'm earning salvation. No. No. Let's be clear. Earning means we do something so that God owes us salvation. If you go to work and you work, you earn a wage and that your employer owes you that. God owes us nothing. The gift of salvation is just that, a gift because of his grace and his mercy. And it comes from believing Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is. I've used this metaphor many times. If I told you this room was on fire, whether you believed it or not would be evidenced by whether you got up and left. 
If you stay here when I say the room is on fire, I would argue you don't believe me. You don't believe the room is really on fire. But if you got up and left, you believed me. If you believe that Jesus of the Bible is the way to the Father, is the way to heaven, is the way to salvation, then you are going to care about what the Bible says and about living your life for Jesus. Why are the Philadelphians, why is the door open to them? He says, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We can't, if you come to church because you think that causes God to owe you or causes God to even let you into heaven, then you're trying to earn salvation. If you come to God because you believe Jesus Christ and you believe coming to church is what you want to do and what you should do and is part of your relationship and is not going to get you anything, then your life is reflecting your faith. Sometimes we, we just get confused, especially in the Protestant world. We, we, we just so emphasize that, that as long as I mentally agree to something, I'm okay. But the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. It says if you believe, you're going to live a life that reflects that belief. But if you try to live that life to earn salvation, you can't do it. You really have to believe. And sometimes it's too simple for people. I've heard people say, Tom, that's just too easy. You're telling me I've got to believe. Yeah, if you really believe, you're going to want to. If you love your spouse, you're going to act a certain way. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to act a certain way. It just flows from that belief, from that value system. And that's why when he says, I know your works, he isn't saying they earned salvation. He isn't saying that they did something that made God want to have them in heaven. He is saying that their lives reflect the fact that they believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world. goes on, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they'll learn that I have loved you. Ooh. Synagogue of Satan. We, we saw it in Smyrna, a letter. That's just some tough language. But isn't the first time he's accused the Jews of that. And Johnny refers to him, Satan as their father. See, clearly they're rejecting Jesus and they're persecuting the church all over the world, but particularly here in Philadelphia, and they're much bigger. And you can just hear them saying to the Christians, you know, there's no way you're getting to heaven. No way. You're following this imposture. In fact, you're an affront to God. You're blasphemers. You're, you're horrible. And Jesus is saying, because you're patiently enduring in faith. And that's a key theme in the Bible is endurance. It's day in and day out. Oh, we have good days and we have bad days. We have good months, we have bad months. But just enduring in our faith. And, and, and he's going to have one day the Jews acknowledge that the followers of Jesus, the Christians, are right. They're bowing down not to worship the Christians, but to acknowledge that who the Christians follow, Jesus, is the Lord, is the true Messiah. That day is coming. 
It goes to verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We did this introduction, these, these four-part introduction to Revelation where we looked at historically how Revelation has been looked at. And we said that we, we kind of have to hold a number of these things and positions lightly because they're much debated and they've come and gone over the 2,000 years of Christianity. And this is a verse that, that has developed some thinking that, that has, um, in the last 150, 200 years, has developed this concept of, of the rapture. The, the rapture uh, popularized by a book series called Left Behind. And that's the removal of the church prior to a great tribula- tribulation. I, I have to be honest, I, I, though I hold my position lightly, I, I don't see that in this verse. First, the rapture requires Jesus re- to return twice. The idea is he comes, takes the church, and then comes back again in the final. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible the twice coming returning of Jesus. And the other one is, is grammatical in the Greek. The, the, the verbs and the, use, the words used here for uh, them is the same as in John 17, 15, where he says about the disciples in the great prayer he has for disciples, he says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What, what Jesus is saying there is, is keep the disciples in the world. But protect them because they're going to be heavily persecuted. And we know they are heavily persecuted and they're virtually all martyred. And that's the same wording that's used here in verse 10. So the sense is that not that the church or the believers are going to be taken out of the world before some great tribulation, but that Jesus is going to be with them in the trials and tribulations of being a follower of Christ. And there are tribulations that the whole world experiences but Christians especially. And you don't have to be much of a student of the Bible to know that the Bible teaches that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's going to be tough times. There's going to, the world is not going to be, well, the more a follower of Christ you are, the world, more the world's not going to like you a whole lot. And so you're going to suffer and go through these tribulations. And, and that's what I see here. But I always say we've got to hold these things lightly because pick any period of time in the last 2,000 years and there's been a popular way of looking at some of these issues. But having said that, that does not change the truth that is in the Word of God. That if we're patiently enduring, that the Holy Spirit will take us through these times of tribulation and even cause us to grow. And we come to verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. You remember a few weeks ago, John had had that written on his knuckles and talked about having that as a reminder to hold fast. It's it's a theme throughout the Bible. In fact, in our teaching in Hebrews, the book of Hebrew, a couple years ago, we saw that, how we're to hold fast to Jesus Christ. No matter what goes on, no matter what trials and tribulations, the Hebrews, they're under persecution. Here in this church of Philadelphia, they're under persecution. Just hold on to Jesus Christ. And some of you have heard me say that. You've gone through a tough time. Things have happened that have not been to your favor. And I said, just hold on to Jesus. In fact, hold on to Jesus more now than you ever have. The Bible's clear that God lets these things in our lives so that we learn to endure, hold fast, and grow in our faith. 
And he says it over and over. And that's what we're to do. And by doing that, by holding fast, we don't let anyone seize our crown. What's this? Well, it's a, the crown is a, a wreath awarded to athletes when they win the race or win the prize. And it's a theme that Paul uses a lot. In fact, he says in, in Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And 2 Timothy, Timothy 4, 7 through 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We hold fast because that crown awaits us. You know, some of you may think that the life on earth is the greatest thing that ever happened and you never want to leave it. Some of you may say life on earth has just been torturous and I can't wait to be done. But either way, the crown that Christ offers makes everything else, everything else we've ever experienced, the greatest moment you've ever had in your life, seem like tragedy. And what he's saying is, is don't lose that crown. Run the good race. Fight the good fight. Hold on to the truth of Jesus Christ. Allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform your life. Know his word. Follow his teachings. How can we persevere? How can we hold fast to that which we don't even know? Knowing the word of God is critical. I mean, if I gave you a new piece of equipment that you'd never seen or heard of before, and I gave you a manual, and then you just got on it and tried to operate it, it may not go that well. As we try to be followers of Jesus Christ without understanding what it means to be his follower, often it doesn't go well. And that's how we let somebody cut in and get our prize. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Wow. <laughs> the conquerors, those are the ones that have run the good race, who have held fast, who have endured in faith. They become part of the temple. The temple is the metaphor for where God dwells. So literally, we're part of the dwelling of God. Can you think of that? Can you imagine that we're all linked together and become the dwelling place of God? Now, we have a little bit of that today because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but we're talking about the full Trinity. And on us will be written the name of the, the Father, the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem. We're going to get into that in, in chapter 21. And then the new name of Jesus Christ, which no one knows 
but that will be written on us because that identifies us. Those are the names of life. Those are the names of freedom. Those are the names of ownership. Do we have the name of Christ written on us somewhere today? Oh, not like this. But do we have the mark of Christ? How are we marked by Christ today? How can people look at us and say, yeah, those, those people are the followers of Christ. They have the mark of Christ on them. It may not be visibly written on us, but it should be a part of how we live, a part of our works. And they're way better than any tattoo. I, I don't know where you are. I got to be honest. You may think I know you really well, but the Bible's clear. I don't know anyone on earth well enough to know where they're at with God. But have you found the key? Have you found the key? And if you walk through the door, I mean, people come to church all the time, and church is great, and it's great to come here, but that doesn't mean that you've taken the step through the door. I went to church for a long time before I accepted the invitation and walked through that door. And if we've walked through the door, does our life reflect that? Are our works such that it speaks to whose we are? Are, are we to the point in life where people around us, not because we're preaching, but because of how we're living, they know because we have the mark of Christ on us? Now, I'm not trying to get you to, well, maybe I am trying to get you to examine your life. Because that's what the Bible does over and over. It asks us to examine our lives and to reflect on how we live according to our faith. The key to life is Jesus Christ. The key to eternity is Jesus Christ. The key to going home to be with the Father is Jesus Christ. Have you embraced that? Are you living that? And does the world know it? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners and fallen short. We acknowledge that, that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, so if we believe, truly believe in him, that we can be saved. And that we acknowledge that we need to repent, acknowledge our sins, and turn from the world and turn from our sins and turn to Jesus. And when we do, you send your Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And we have access to you and we have access to eternity. And when we do that, our lives look different. Help us examine our lives. Help us, even if we've walked through the door many years ago, help us just reflect on our lives and our works. Knowing that we can't earn anything from you, Lord. But just as a measure of how committed we are to your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us do that. As we do it, Lord, we just pray for the blessing of knowing 
that we are yours. It's in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.